I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. We have a healing journey ahead, and it begins with a study from the University of Iowa. And it's about a nutrient, a nutrient we all should be consuming on a daily basis, either in our diet, by eating grapes and berries, or by a supplement. It's called resveratrol, R-E-S-V-E-R-A-T-R-O-L. Why is that important? Because it improves endothelial function, and especially in diabetics. Well, let's break that down. First of all, you're only as healthy as your arteries and your veins. And unfortunately, because we've been a sedentary nation, a lot of people sit too long in front of computers, television, at work. They're not getting up and exercising. As a result, blood frequently pulls down into the calves. You get an intermittent claudication in the feet, get those little purpley veins. And in diabetics, it's really bad. And as a result, as the arteries get damaged through improper diet and alcohol consumption, you can throw a clot. You can increase your blood pressure because the arteries shrink, they harden, atherosclerosis, arterial sclerosis, and that's directly associated with heart disease. You've got to have very pliable, flexible, healthy, clean arteries and veins. Now, the inner tissue is called the endothelium, and if you help clean up the endothelial uh, tissue, like with beets and uh, pomegranates, probably the best thing you could do is have a glass of pomegranate juice each day. No sugar and no water, just pure concentrate, or at least something you can tolerate, because it's not always easy just to drink concentrate. You have to dilute it sometimes. But then there's this nutrient, resveratrol, that you find in grapes and in berries, and it really helps. So diabetics have a big problem. They have a problem with weight, with heart disease, with circulatory problems, with pain, neuropathy, diabetic neuropathy, with a problem with the damage to the eyes, because everything in the body needs circulation. And when you're overweight and when you're diabetic, you're not having a healthy circulation. You can't get the nutrients where they need to go. So the results from this randomized, double-blind, crossover study published in the Journal of Clinical and American Society of Neuropathy revealed improvements in the endothelial function, meaning the functioning of the lining of the blood vessels, which maintains healthy blood flow in people with diabetes and chronic kidney disease compared to those who received a placebo. So that's just very good. So 400 milligrams a day of resveratrol for six weeks made a huge difference. So you see, it's not too late to repair damage done earlier in life. From UCLA, a link was found between a high-fat, high-calorie diet and pancreatic cancer. So if nothing else, just set aside the pancreatic cancer, just a high-calorie, high-fat diet is going to clog your arteries. It's going to increase the number of lesions known as pancreatic uh, neoplasias. And it's going to precipitate cancer. It can also precipitate heart disease. So get off the high fat and the high calorie diets. It takes some time. It takes a good support system. But it takes determination. 
because it's so easy to get lulled into things that are tasty, salty and crunchy and sweet and, uh, and soft. Change to a healthy diet. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who have pain, wow, a really good study, brown-breaking study from uh, University Hospital in Tunisia, acupuncture beats injected morphine. How about that? That's a radical study because the results, you know, put to shame all the side effects from morphine. And this is published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And it reveals that acupuncture, one of the oldest, safest techniques to treat pain, is more effective, faster in relieving pain, and with less adverse effects than intravenous morphine. And this was based upon a one-year period at the hospital, which is a tertiary care facility for over 100,000 emergency department visits per year. So a good study. And uh, so a replacement for morphine, where you don't lose cognition. Also, from the University of Southampton in the United Kingdom, watercress, something that very few Americans eat, turns off breast cancer cell growth. How about that? That's really good news. Now, watercress you can grow, but it generally grows where there's water flowing over it. It's a bitter, and these bitters are very important in our health. It's been known for a long time that uh, it's been associated with uh, with the powerful ability to be a very important part of fighting breast cancer. This study was conducted at the University of Southampton and published in the British Journal of Nutrition and Biochemical Pharmacology. There are isothiocyanates within it like broccoli and broccoli sprouts and cauliflower and asparagus and, uh, and kale and radishes. They all contain these isothiocyanates and those suppress breast cancer cell development. So it works two ways. One, you consume healthy uh, foods like the cruciferous vegetables and then that helps prevent the cancer or if you have cancer, you use that as part of your overall protocol and it also helps stop the cancer cells from growing. And how it works is it turns off a signal in the cells which is necessary for cancer cell growth. Good news. When cancerous tumors outgrow the blood, their blood supply, they send out signals to normal cells to feed them oxygen and nutrients. This compound in watercress interferes with those signals. The result is the starvation of cancer cells and, uh, and stops their blood and oxygen supply. So just something to think about. Inexpensive, non-toxic, and it's really good. And from Massachusetts General Hospital, heated yoga may reduce depression symptoms in a randomized controlled trial, clinical trial, with moderate to severe depression those participating in heated yoga sessions experience significantly greater reduction in depression symptoms compared with the control group. All right, heated yoga. It's been around a long time. And this was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. And finally, one last study here. And 
All my studies, by the way, come from the National Library of Medicine. Moving muscle fibers with magnets programs how they align with tissue. This is from MIT and Boston University. So what it means is this. Stimulating muscle fibers with magnets cause them to grow in the same direction, aligning muscle cells with t- within tissues. And, uh, and that was published in the journal device. The findings offer a simpler, less time-consuming way for medical researchers to program muscle cell alignment, which is strongly tied to healthy muscle cell function. Just, you know, something important. One more reason why you might want to sleep on a magnetic pad on top of your mattress and have a magnetic seat pad for your car. All right? I won't go into all the things like mechanically stimulating the muscle fibers over a 10-day period and what it does when you use magnets or you don't use magnets. But it's just one thing that doctors and therapists can use. And that's it for health and nutrition. We're going to take a break and come right back. And remember, a lot of new information is available upon GaryAndAll.com. Articles, essays, uh, white papers, investigative reports, and lots of good information. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us. During the past nearly four years, we've been told repeatedly by all the major media and all the government agencies like the CDC and the FDA that the vaccines were safe and effective. It prevented more people from going to the hospital and dying from COVID. Those are lies. The vaccines were not only not effective, but extremely dangerous, without question now, in retrospect, based upon all the studies, and there are lots of studies, we could have stopped COVID early on by having FDA-approved off-label medicines and natural nutrients like vitamin D, quercetin, vitamin C, and zinc, and we didn't, because those in power didn't want us taking that route, and now that's coming to pass. But there's something else that we should be aware of. It's called excess deaths. They started measuring how many people die per year from all causes in every country in 2015 through 2019 before COVID. So they had a good standard to work from. And then COVID came and there was a spike, mainly in older individuals who had comorbidities and or people in nursing homes, hospice care, assisted living centers who did not have COVID, but were then uh, held in the areas where people who were sent back from hospital into these centers, big scandals in New York, where suddenly everybody got COVID from the person that was sent from the hospital with COVID back into the nursing homes. That's on the former governor of New York. He authorized that. That was just brutally you know, um, unscientific, with deadly consequences. But then in came the vaccines, the big promise. And so people got vaccinated, not just once, but then you got to have a second vaccine, then you had to have a booster, then another booster, and another booster. Now it's like a booster every two months because they're showing the efficacy is so low, but they're not paying attention and not telling you the truth about the adverse effects. I do not know of a reasonable person who would ever take 
any of these vaccines that they're offering now, since there's no human clinical trials on them, it's an experimental therapy, and now we have hundreds of articles from independent scientists at prestigious institutions saying, stop, stop all of it, because now we're seeing huge spikes, never seen before in American history, except for maybe the uh, flu of, uh, of uh, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, uh, now you're seeing it. We're, in some cases, we're seeing as much as a 40% increase in deaths, and they're saying of unknown causes. Well, of course, do an autopsy, you'll know why. Heart attacks, strokes, embolisms, um, all forms of uh, blocked arteries, myocarditis, endocarditis, Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's what's killing people. And every day you see young people who have no risk factors dying suddenly. In fact, a huge spike. So a group of individuals in Great Britain associated with the government began in Parliament, began to do research. And they have what is without question the most comprehensive, detailed, charted, graphed, and independently validated report. It's a little long, but I felt it was important that for those of you who are pro-vaccine and are going to get more vaccines, whether you do or not is your business. But at least know that there's a huge risk factor of you dying or becoming permanently injured or having severe adverse effects that your government will not acknowledge and our government does not acknowledge. Let's go to this report. Now, what's interesting is you'll see a couple scenes, if you're watching this, where there's a person in Parliament, there's a few backbenchers uh, sitting beside him, and then there's a couple on the other side, I think two people. But where are all the other members of Parliament? They chose not to participate. How come? Why? Wouldn't you want to know about all excess deaths? Should unless you have been influenced by the pharmaceutical industry and governmental agencies who are culpable, who are vulnerable. Sooner or later, we will have our own form of a Nuremberg trial. Sooner or later, all the people who lied to you repeatedly and are still lying, just to make a profit, will be held accountable. Here's the truth, and this you have not seen, you have not heard. This has been presented nowhere, zero, in the American media. So I'm offering this form, and everything this person is saying is backed up by multiple documentation from official sources. Now to the report. Andrew Bridgen. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. We've experienced more excess deaths since July 2021 than the whole of 2020. Unlike the pandemic, however, these deaths are not disproportionately of the old. In other words, the excessive deaths are striking down people in the prime of life. But no one seems to care. I fear history will not judge this House kindly. Worse still, in a country supposedly committed to free and frank exchange of views, it appears that no one cares that no one cares. Well, I care, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I credit those members here in attendance today who also care. And I'd also like to thank the Honourable Member for Lincoln for his support and I'm sorry that he couldn't attend today's debate. 
It's taken a lot of effort and more than 20 rejections to be allowed to raise this topic, but at last we're here to discuss the number of people dying. Nothing could be more serious. Numerous countries are currently gripped in a period of unexpected mortality and no one wants to talk about it. It's quite normal for death numbers to fluctuate up and down by chance alone. But what we're seeing here is a pattern repeated across countries and the rise has not let up. I'll give way to my honourable gentleman. I'm, I'm very grateful and can I commend him for his, the tenacious way he's, he's battled on this particular um, issue. I, I certainly admire him uh, for that. I just wonder where he found the media was in all of this, because of course during the Covid pandemic, every day the media, particularly the BBC, couldn't wait to tell us how many people had died in that particular day without any context of those figures whatsoever. But they seem to have gone strangely quiet uh, over these uh, excess deaths now. Gentleman, for his intervention, he's absolutely right. The media have let the British public down badly. There will be a full press uh, pack going out to all media outlets following my speech with all the evidence to back up all the claims I'll make in that speech, but I don't doubt there will be no mention of it in the mainstream media. You might think that a debate about excess deaths is going to be full of numbers. This speech does not have that many numbers because most of the important numbers are being kept hidden. Other data has been oddly presented in a distorted way and concerned people seeking to highlight important findings and ask questions have found themselves inexplicably under attack. Before debating excess deaths, it's important to understand how excess death is determined. To understand if there is an excess, by definition you need to estimate how many deaths it would have been expected. The Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development used 2015 to 2019 as a baseline and the Government's Office of Health Disparities and Improvement uses 2015 to 2019 baseline modelled to allow for ageing and I've used that data here. Unforgivably, the Office of National Statistics have included deaths in 2021 as part of their baseline calculation for expected deaths as if there was anything normal about the deaths in 2021 by exaggerating the number of deaths expected, the number of excess can be minimised. Why would the ONS want to do that? There's just too much that we don't know and it's not good enough, Mr Deputy Speaker. The ONS published promptly each week the number of deaths that were registered. And while this is commendable, it's not the data point that really matters. There's a total failure to collect, never mind publish, data on deaths that are referred for investigation to the coroner. Why does this matter? A referral means that it can be many months, and given the backlog, many years before a death is formally registered. Needing to investigate the cause of a death is fair enough. Failing to record when the death happened is not. Because of this problem, we actually have no idea how many people actually died in 2021. Even now, the problem is greatest for the younger age groups, where there's a higher proportion of deaths are investigated. This data failure is unacceptable. It must change. There's nothing in a coroner's report that can bring anyone back from the dead, and those deaths should be reported. The youngest age groups are important not only because they should have their whole lives ahead of them. If there is a new cause of excess mortality across the board, it would not be noticed so much in the older cohorts because the extra deaths would be drowned out amongst the expected deaths. However, in the youngest cohorts, that is not the case. 
There were nearly two extra deaths a day in the second half of 2021 among 15 to 19 year old males, but potentially even more if those referred to the coroner were fully included. In a judicial review of the decision to vaccinate yet younger children, the ONS refused in court to give anonymised details about these deaths. They admitted that the data they were withholding was statistically significant, and I quote, they said, the ONS recognises that more work could be undertaken to examine the mortality rates of young people in 2021 and intends to do so once more reliable data are available. How many more extra deaths in 15 to 19 year olds would it take to trigger such work? Surely the ONS should be desperately keen to investigate deaths in young men. Why else have an independent body charged with examining mortality data? Surely the ONS has a responsibility to collect data from the coroners to produce timely information. Let's move on to old people because most deaths in the old are registered promptly and we do have a better feel for how many older people are dying. Deaths from dementia and Alzheimer's show what we ought to expect. There was a period of high mortality coinciding with Covid and lockdowns but ever since there have been fewer deaths than expected. After a period of high mortality, we expect, and historically have seen, a period of low mortality because those who have sadly died cannot die again. Those whose deaths were slightly premature because of Covid and lockdowns died earlier than they otherwise would have. This principle should hold true for every cause of death and every age group, but that's not what we're seeing. Even for the over 85-year-olds, according to the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities, there were 8,000 excess deaths, 4% above the expected levels, for the 12 months starting in July 2020. That includes all of the autumn 2020 wave of COVID, when we had tiering, the second lockdown, and it includes all of the first COVID winter. However, for the year starting July 2022, there have been over 18,000 excess deaths in this age group, 9% above expected levels more than twice as many in a period when there should have been a deficit. And when deaths from diseases previously associated with old age were actually fewer than expected. Mr Deputy Speaker, I've raised my concerns around NG163 and the use of midazolam and morphine, which may have caused and may still be causing premature deaths in the vulnerable. But that is uh, sadly a debate for another day. There were just over 14,000 excess deaths in the under 65 year olds before vaccination from April 2020 to the end of March 2021. However, since that time, there's been over 21,000 excess deaths, ignoring the registration delay problem. The majority, 58% of these deaths, were not attributed to COVID. We turned society upside down before vaccination for fear of excess deaths from COVID. Today, we have substantially more excess deaths and in younger people. And there's complete and eerie silence, Mr. Deputy Speaker. The evidence is unequivocal. There was a clear stepwise increase in mortality following the vaccine rollout. There was a reprieve in the winter of 2021-22 because there were fewer than expected respiratory deaths, but otherwise the excess has been incessantly at this high level. Ambulance data for England provides another clue. Ambulance calls for life-threatening emergencies were running at a steady 2,000 calls per day until the vaccine rollout. From then it rose to 2,500 daily and calls have stayed at this level since. The surveillance systems designed to spot a safety problem have all flashed red, but no one's looking. 
Claims for personal independence payments for people who've developed a disability and cannot work rocketed with the vaccine rollout, and it's continued to rise ever since. The same was seen in the USA, also started with a vaccine rollout, not with COVID. A study to determine the vaccination status of a sample of such claimants would be relatively quick and inexpensive to perform, yet nobody seems interested in ascertaining this vital information. Officials have chosen to turn a blind eye to this disturbing, irrefutable and frightening data, much like Nelson did, but for, for far less honourable reasons. He would be ashamed of us, Mr Deputy Speaker. Furthermore, data that has been used to sing the praises of the vaccines is deeply flawed. Only one COVID-related death was prevented in each of the initial major trials that led to authorisation of the vaccines, and that is taking their data entirely at face value whereas a growing number of inconsistencies and anomalies suggest we ought not to do this. Extrapolating from that means that between 15,000 and 20,000 people had to be injected to prevent a single death from COVID. To prevent a single COVID hospitalisation, over 1,500 people needed to be injected. The trial data showed that one in 800 injected people had a serious adverse event, meaning they were hospitalised or had a life-changing or life-threatening condition. The risk of this was twice as high as the chance of preventing a COVID hospitalisation. We're harming one in 800 people to supposedly save one in 20,000. This is madness. The strongest claims have too often been based on modelling carried out on the basis of flawed assumptions. Where observational studies have been carried out, researchers will correct for age and comorbidities to make the vaccines look better. However, Mr Deputy Speaker, they never correct for socio-economic or, or ethnic differences that would make the vaccines look worse. This matters. For example, claims of higher mortality in less vaccinated regions in the United States took no account of the fact that this was the case before the vaccines were rolled out. That is why studies that claim to show the vaccines prevented COVID deaths also showed a marked effect in them preventing non-COVID deaths. The prevention of non-COVID deaths is always a statistical illusion and claims of preventing COVID deaths should not be assumed when that illusion has not been corrected for. And when it is corrected for, the claims of efficacy for the vaccines vanish with it. COVID disproportionately killed people from ethnic minorities and lower socio-economic groups. During the 2020, during the pandemic, the deaths among the most deprived were up by 23%, compared to 17% for the least deprived. However, since 2022, the pattern has reversed, with 5% excess mortality amongst the most deprived, compared to 7% among the least deprived. These deaths are being caused by something different. In 2020, the excess was highest in the oldest cohorts, and there were fewer than expected deaths amongst the younger age groups. But since 2022, the 50 to 64 year old cohort has had the highest excess mortality. Even the youngest age groups are now seeing substantial excess with a 9% excess in the under 50s since 2022 compared to 5% now in the over 75 group. Despite London being a younger region, the excess in London is only 3%, whereas it's higher in every more heavily vaccinated region of the UK. And it should be noted, Mr Deputy Speaker, that London is famously the least vaccinated region in the UK by some margin. Studies comparing regions on a larger scale show the same thing. 
There are studies from the Netherlands, Germany and the whole world, each showing that the highest mortality after vaccination was seen in the most heavily vaccinated regions. So we need to ask, what are people dying of? Since 2022, there has been 11% excess in ischemic heart disease deaths and a 16% excess in heart failure deaths. In meantime, cancer deaths, only 1% above expected levels, which is further evidence. This is not simply some other factor that affects deaths across the boards, such as a failing to account for an aging population or a failing NHS. In fact, the excess itself has a seasonality with a peak in the winter months. The fact it returns to baseline levels in summer is a further indication that this is not due to some statistical error or an ageing population alone. Dr Claire Craig from the Heart Group first highlighted a stepwise increase in cardiac arrest calls after the vaccine rollout in May 2021 and Heart have repeatedly raised concerns about the increase in cardiac deaths and they have every reason to be concerned. Four participants in the vaccine group of the Pfizer trial died from cardiac arrest compared to only one in the placebo group. Overall, there were 21 deaths in the vaccine group up to March 2021 compared to 17 in the placebo group. And there are serious anomalies about the reporting of the deaths within this trial, with the deaths in the uh, vaccine group taking much longer to report than those in the placebo group. And that's highly suggestive, Mr Deputy Speaker, of a significant bias in what was supposed to be a blinded trial. An Israeli study clearly showed an increase in cardiac hospital attendances among 18 to 39-year-olds that correlated with vaccination, not with COVID. There have now been several post-mortem studies demonstrating a causal link between vaccination and coronary artery disease leading to death up to four months after the last dose. And we need to remember that the safety trial was cut short to only two months. So there's no evidence of any vaccine safety beyond that point. The decision to unblind the trials after two months and vaccinate the placebo group is nothing less than a public health scandal. Everyone involved failed in their duty to work the truth. But no one cares, Mr Deputy Speaker. The one place that can help us understand exactly what caused this is Australia. Australia had almost no COVID when vaccines were first introduced, making them the perfect control group. The state of South Australia had only a thousand cases of COVID across its whole population by December 2021, before Omicron arrived. What was the impact of vaccination there? For 15 to 44 year olds, there was historically 1300 emergency cardiac presentations a month. With vaccine rollout, in the under 50s, this rocketed to 2,172 cases in November 2021 in this age group alone, a 67% more than usual. Overall, there were 17,900 South Australians who had a cardiac emergency in 2021, compared to only 13,250 in 2018, a 35% increase. It is clearly the vaccine that must be the number one suspect in this, and it cannot be dismissed as just a coincidence. Australian mortality overall has increased from early 2021 and the increase is due to cardiac deaths. These excess deaths are not due to an ageing population because there are fewer deaths in the diseases of old age. These deaths are not an effect of Covid because they've happened in places where Covid have not reached. And they're not due to low statin prescriptions or undertreated hypertension as Chris Whitty would suggest because prescriptions did not change and in any effect would have taken many years and been very small. The prime suspect must be something that was introduced to the population as a whole, 
something novel, the prime hypothesis must be the experimental COVID-19 vaccines. The ONS published a data set of deaths by, vac by vaccinated and unvaccinated. At first glance, it appears to show that the vaccines are safe and effective. However, there were several huge problems with how they presented that data. One was that for the first three-week period after injection, the ONS claimed there were only a tiny number of deaths. The number the ONS would normally predict to occur in a single week. Where were the deaths from the usual causes? When this was raised, the ONS claimed that the sickest people did not get vaccinated and therefore people were uh, taking the vaccination were, were self-selecting for those least likely to die. Not only is this not the case in the real world, with even hospices heavily vaccinating their residents, but the ONS's own data showed that the proportion of sickest people was equal in the vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. This inevitably raises serious questions about the ONS's data presentation. There were so many problems with the methodology used by the ONS that the statistics regulator agreed that the ONS data could not be used to assess vaccine efficacy or safety. That tells you something about the ONS. Consequently, Hart asked the UK Health Security Agency to provide the data they had on people who had died and therefore needed to be removed from their vaccination data set. This request has been repeatedly refused, with excuses given including the false claim that anonymising this data will be equivalent to creating it, even though there is case law that anonymisation is not considered creation of new data. Mr Deputy Speaker, I believe if this data was released it would be damning. Some claim that so many lives have been saved by mass vaccination that any amount of harm, suffering and death caused by the vaccines is a price worth paying. They're delusional, Mr Deputy Speaker. The claim of 20 million lives saved is based on now discredited models which assume that Covid waves do not peak without intervention. There have been numerous waves globally that now demonstrate that is not the case and it was also based on there having been more than half a million lives saved in the UK. That's more than the worst case scenario predicted uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. For the claim to have been true, the rate at which Covid killed people would have to have taken off dramatically at the beginning of 2021 with the, in the absence of vaccination. This is ludicrous and it bears no relationship to the truth. In the real world, Australia, New Zealand and South Korea had a mortality rate of 400 deaths per million up to the summer of 2022, after they were first hit with Omicron. So how does that compare? With the Wuhan strain, France and Europe as a whole had a mortality rate of under 400 deaths per million up to the summer of 2020. Australia, New Zealand and South Korea were all heavily vaccinated before infection. So tell me, where, where was the benefit? The UK had just over 800 deaths per million up to the summer of 2020, so twice as much. But we know that Omicron is half as deadly as the Wuhan variant. The death rates per million are the same before and after vaccination, so where was the benefits of vaccination? The regulators have failed in their duty to protect the public. They've allowed these novel products to skip crucial safety testing by letting them be described as vaccines. They've failed to insist on safety testing being done in the years since the first temporary emergency authorisation. Even now, no one can tell you how much spike protein is produced on vaccination and for how long. Yet another example of where there is no data for me to share with the House. And when it comes to properly recording deaths due to vaccination, the system's broken. Not a single doctor registered a death from a rare brain, brain pot before docs in Scandinavia forced the issue and the MHRA acknowledged the problem. Only then did these deaths start to be certified by doctors in the UK. It turns out that the doctors were waiting for permission from the regulator and the regulator was waiting to be alerted by the doctors. 
This is a lethal circularity. Furthermore, coroners have written Regulation 28 reports highlighting deaths from vaccination to prevent further deaths, yet the MHRA said in a response to an FOI that they had not received any of them. The system we have in place is clearly not functioning to protect the public. The regulators also missed the fact that the Pfizer trial, in the Pfizer trial, the vaccine was made for the trial participants in a highly controlled environment, in stark contrast to the manufacturing process used for the public rollout, which was based on a completely different technology. And just, only, just over 200 participants were given the same product that was given to the public. But not only was the data from these people never compared to those in the trial for efficacy and safety, but the MHRA have admitted that they dropped the requirement to provide the data. That means there was never a trial on the Pfizer product that was actually rolled out to the public. And that product has never been compared to the product that was actually trialled. The vaccine mass production processes use vats of Escherichia coli and present a risk of contamination with DNA from the bacteria as well as bacterial cell walls which can cause dangerous reactions. This is not theoretical, Mr Deputy Speaker. This is now sound evidence that's been replicated by several labs across the world and the mRNA vaccines uh, were contaminated by DNA which far exceeded the usual permissible levels. Given that this DNA is enclosed in lipid nanoparticle delivery system, and it's, it's arguable that even the permissible levels have been far too high, these lipid nanoparticles are known to enter every organ of the body, as well as this potentially causing some of the acute adverse reactions seen, there is a serious risk that this foreign bacterial DNA inserting itself into human DNA. And will anybody investigate? No, they won't. I'll give way on that point. I'm conscious that time is tight. I, I, I uh, recognise that Honourable Gentleman is making a very, very powerful case. Does he agree with me that the government should be looking at this properly and should commission a review into the excess deaths, partly so that we can reassure our constituents that the case he's making is not, in fact, valid and that the, and that the vaccines have no cause uh, behind these excess deaths? I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his support on this topic and of course that is what exactly any responsible government should do. I wrote to the Prime Minister on the 7th of August 2023 with all the evidence of this but sadly, Mr Deputy Speaker, I, I still await a response. What will it to take to stop these products? The complete failure to stop infection was not enough and we all know plenty of vaccinated people who have caught and spread Covid. The mutation of the virus to a weaker variant, Omicron, that, that, that wasn't enough. The increasing evidence of the serious harms to those of us that were vaccinated, that's not enough. And now the cardiac deaths and the deaths of young people is apparently not enough either. It's high time these experimental vaccines were suspended and a full investigation into the harms they've caused initiated. History will be a harsh judge if we don't start using evidence-based medicine. We need to return to basic science, basic ethics immediately, which means listening to all voices and investigating all concerns. In conclusion, Mr Deputy Speaker, the experimental COVID-19 vaccines are not safe and they're not effective. Despite there only being limited interest in the Chamber from colleagues, I and mean, I'm very grateful for those who have attended, we can see from the public gallery there is considerable public interest. I would implore all members of the House present and those not support calls for a three-hour debate on this important issue. And Mr Deputy Speaker, this might be the first debate on excess deaths in our Parliament. Indeed, it might be the first debate on excess deaths in the world, but very sadly, I promise you, it won't be the last. Sobering, yes. Honest, yes. Objective, yes. And yet, buried. 
Not even the British media are reporting on this. This is how strong the complicity is between governmental agencies, scientists, Imperial College, uh, epidemiologists, and all the media that they control, like the BBC. But they don't control us. And that's why you watched this and heard it. So you have the truth now. What you do with it's up to you. I detach from what choices you make. I just bring you at least information to broaden your perspective so you have a more thorough understanding before you make your freedom of choice. We're going to take a break and come right back for an important commentary. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. The following commentary that I'm going to share with you is from Chris Hedges, and it's original in share post. This is a message to Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and all of the hosts on Fox, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, the White House, the State Department, Justice Department, because all we've heard is one side of an argument. And that argument, as we've all heard, is that whatever extreme desires that the Israeli government has to eliminate Hamas, it is insignificant the casualties that occur in the process. If that's the position, then what has been active for 75 years will come to a conclusion. First, they'll completely destroy Gaza, both the south, the north, all of it, and then possibly the West Bank. Interesting because it's so simple, the solution, allowing both the Israeli citizens who deserve to live in peace and harmony and the Palestinians and the Christians, all who live in these areas, to live together as they historically they have. And I'm going to go into that history tomorrow. I had a, a segment yesterday where a person was asked a question about uh, Western civilization, and he answered it for nine minutes. And he didn't point out all of the great achievements but he did point out our contradictions and said, why don't you give some balance to your achievements with what you did wrong? So I thought, okay, what if we ask the question, and what are the achievements and the, the devastating side effects or immediate effects of policies throughout the Middle East, throughout its history? So that tomorrow, I don't have time today. So to all those people who are only listening with one mindset, without concern for the other, innocent civilians who do not support Hamas, this is from Chris Hedges. Israel is not only decimating Gaza with airstrikes, but employing the oldest and cruelest weapon of war, starvation. Israel's message on the eve of the ground invasion is clear. Leave Gaza or die. Israel, with the backing of the, its United States and European allies, is preparing to launch not only a scorched earth campaign in Gaza, but the worst ethnic cleansing since the wars in the former Yugoslavia. The goal is to drive tens, but most probably hundreds of thousands of Palestinians over the southern border to Rafah and to the refugee camps in Egypt. Reverberations will be catastrophic, not only for the Palestinians, but throughout the region, almost certainly triggering armed clashes to the north of 
Israel with Hezbollah in Lebanon and perhaps with Syria and Iran. The Biden administration slavishly doing Israel's bidding is fueling them in madness. The U.S. was the only country to veto the United Nations Security Council resolution calling for humanitarian pauses to deliver food, medicine, water, and fuel to Gaza. It has blocked proposals for a ceasefire. It has proposed a draft UN Security Council resolution that says Israel has a right to defend itself. The resolution also demands Iran stop exporting arms to, quote, militias and terrorist groups threatening peace and security across the region, end quote. The United States and its Western allies are as morally bankrupt and as complicit in genocide as those who witnessed the Nazi Holocaust as Jew, of the Jews and did nothing. The conflict which has taken the lives of 1,400 Israelis and at least 4,600 Palestinians in Gaza is widening. Israel carried out a second airstrike on two airports in Syria. It daily trades rocket barrages with Hezbollah militias. U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria have been attacked by Shia militias. The USS Kearney, a guided missile destroyer, shot down three cruise missiles on Thursday, apparently launched by the Houthis in Yemen and headed towards Israel. Israel is also struggling to quell daily violent clashes in the occupied West Bank. It carried out an airstrike on Sunday on a mosque in the Jenin refugee camp, the first airstrike in the West Bank in two decades that killed at least two people. Armed with Jewish settlers, or armed Jewish settlers, have been rampaging through Palestinian towns in the West Bank. At least 90 Palestinians in the West Bank have been killed by armed settlers or the Israeli military since October 7th incursion into Israel by Hamas and other resistant fighters. According to the United Nations Humanitarian Office, some 4,000 workers from Gaza have been arrested in the past two weeks, doubling the number of Palestinian prisoners to 10,000 held by Israel, over half of whom are political prisoners. Quote, many of the prisoners have had their limbs, hands, and legs broken, degrading and insulting expressions, insults, cursing, tying them with handcuffs to the back and tightening them at the end to the point of causing severe pain. Naked, humiliating, and group searches of the prisoners, end quote. That was from the Palestinian Authorities Commission for Detainees Affairs uh, at a press conference. The Israeli Human Rights Organization told the BBC that since October 7th attack, it had documented, quote, a concerted and organized effort by settlers to use the fact that the entire international and local attention is focused on Gaza and the north of Israel to try to seize land in the West Bank, end quote. Inside Israel, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship and Jerusalem IDs are being harassed, detained, arrested, and expelled from jobs and universities in which it's described as, quote, a witch hunt. More than 152,000 Israelis have been evacuated from towns and villages near the borders of Gaza and Lebanon. The United States, in an effort to thwart a military response by Iran that could trigger a regional war, is deploying an additional 2,000 troops to the Middle East. It will redeploy one 
of its strike groups to the Persian Gulf and send additional air defense systems to the region. The USS Dwight D. Eisenhower and its strike group, which last weekend was being deployed to the eastern Mediterranean Sea to join the USS Gerald R. Ford, has been redirected to the Persian Gulf. A terminal high-altitude area defense anti-missile battery and Patriot Missile Defense System battalions have also been sent to the Gulf. Israel has unleashed its four horsemen of the apocalypse, death, famine, war, and conquest. It has given Gazans two choices, leave Gaza or die. Palestinians will be killed not only from the bombs and shells, and eventually with the ground invasion bullets and tank shells, but from hunger and epidemics such as cholera, without water, fuel, medicine, and with the breakdown of sanitation, diseases will spread swiftly. A UN states that hospitals in Gaza, quote, are on the brink of collapse. Thousands of patients will die once fuel runs out for hospital generators. A doctor from Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza reported in an interview on Saturday, quote, we're collapsing. He spoke of a lack of oxygen, light, and medical supplies. No water in some departments. Concerns about cholera and the loss of doctors killed by Israeli airstrikes, including a dentist killed in Israeli bombing of an Orthodox church that left at least 18 dead, including several children. The handful of trucks, 37 so far of aid, into Gaza is a cynical public relations gimmick demanded by the Biden administration. It will do little to alleviate the Israeli-engineered humanitarian crisis. The UN says it needs at least 100 aid trucks a day. Gaza's last functioning seawater desalinization plant shut down on Sunday because of a lack of fuel. Israel has no intention of lifting the total siege of Gaza. It announced it will increase its airstrikes. It will continue, as it has for the past two weeks, to extinguish the lives of Palestinians and terrorists and starve them into leaving Gaza. The ground assault on Gaza will not be quick. It will invoke weeks, perhaps months, of street fighting. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin compared the looming battle in Gaza to the U.S. assault of the Iraqi city of Mosul held by ISIS in 2014. It took the U.S. nine months to recapture Mosul. When Israel says it will be a long war, they are for once telling the truth. Israel has requested more military aid from Washington, $14.3 billion, including $10.6 billion billion for air and missile defense. It will get it. Israel is rapidly depleting its stocks as it pounds Gaza, including in the south, of Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of displaced families from the north have fled. Israel will not permit the distribution of the $100 million in USAID pledge for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, at least not until their scorched earth campaign is finished. But by then, Gaza will be unrecognizable. Israel will have annexed part of it, or all of it, and maybe the money can go to building more illegal Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank, and pledging aid, is, pledging aid is not the same as appropriating it. So perhaps that, too, is part of the illusion. Egyptian officials are actually and acutely aware of what comes next. Up to half, maybe more, 
of the 2.3 million Palestinians will be pushed by Israel into Egypt on Gaza's southern border and never allowed to return. What is happening now in Gaza is an attempt to force civilized residents to take refuge and migrate to Egypt, which should not be anticipated or accepted, Egyptian President Sisi warned. Reports out of Egypt contend that Washington has promised to forgive much of Egypt's massive $161 billion debt, as well as offer other economic incentives in exchange for Egypt's acquiescence to the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. The refugees, once they cross the border into Egypt, we left to rot in the Sinai. We're about to end our program on WBI. Since they go to the news for five minutes, I will continue the top of the hour on PRN.live. And tonight, Dr. Jessica Rose from Israel will be my guest. And it'll be an interesting conversation. Quote, there is a grave danger that what we are witnessing may be a repeat of the 1948 NAPCA and the 1967 uh, NAXA, yet on a larger scale. The international community must do everything to stop this from happening again. That was Francisca Albanese, Union Special Repertoire on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967. Israel has long used war to justify the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Government officials have openly called for another Nakba, or catastrophe, the term for the events in 1947 through 1949, when over 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from historic Palestinian and Palestine towns and driven into refugee camps to create the state of Israel. During the 1967 war, which led to Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, Israel ethnically cleansed another 300,000 Palestinians during the Naksa, or Day of the Setback, which is commemorated every year by Palestinians. Israel's ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, however, is not limited to wars. There have been an ongoing slow-motion ethnic cleansing as Israel has steadily built more Jewish-only colonies and incrementally seized Palestinian land. Palestinians denied basic civil liberties in Israel's apartheid state have been robbed of assets, including often their homes. They've been forced to face restrictions on their physical movements. They have been blocked from trading and business especially the selling of produce. They have found themselves increasingly impoverished and trapped behind walls and security fences erected around Gaza and the West Bank. At the same time, they have endured the periodic Israeli airstrikes, targeted assassinations, and near-daily attacks by armed Jewish settlers and the Israeli army. Israel prevented Palestinians who left the West Bank and Gaza Strip from returning at the rate of about 9,000 per year following the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza in 1967 till the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1994, according to the Israeli human rights group uh, HaMoked. Israel had also revoked the residency permits of some 14,000 Palestinians who lived in East Jerusalem since 1967. 
Israel demolished 9,880 structures, including over 2,600 inhabited by residential buildings, displacing over 14,000 people and affecting 233,689 in the West Bank alone. Between January 1, 2009 and October 7, 2023, according to data from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Since October 7th attack, a further 38 homes and other structures were demolished in the West Bank, affecting an additional 13,613 people and displacing at least 73. And less than 2.2% of Palestinians' requests for construction permits were made uh, between 2009 and 2020 were approved, according to data from Peace Now and the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. The number of Israeli colonists in the occupied territories, however, has gone from zero before the June 1967 war to about 600,000 to 750,000 spread out across 250 settlements and outposts throughout the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, all of them, all of them in violation of international law. Israel makes no secret about its intentions. Israel's defense minister, uh, Gallant, told troops preparing to enter Gaza, quote, I've released all the restraints, end quote. The Knesset member, Ariel Kalner, part of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party, called on X, formerly known as Twitter, for, quote, a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 48, end quote. The Israeli army mobilized Yachin, a 95-year-old army veteran, to, quote, motivate the troops Yachin was a member of the Zionist militia that carried out numerous massacres of Palestinian civilians, including the Dire Yassin massacre, April 9, 1948, where over 100 Palestinian civilians, many women and children, were slaughtered. Quote, be triumphant and finish them off, and don't leave anyone behind. Erase the memory of them, end quote, Yashkin said, addressing Israeli troops. Quote, erase them, their families, mothers, and children, he went on, these animals can no longer live, end quote. Quote, every Jew with a weapon should go out and kill them, end quote. If you have an Arab neighbor, don't wait, go to their home and shoot them, end quote. Where are our humanitarian interventions? The ones who wept crocodile tears about human rights in Ukraine, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, to justify massive arms shipments and war. Where's the old anti-war wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal class? What less, what has happened to the public intellectuals who used to decry the slaughter of innocents in the U.S. war machine? Where are the jurists who uphold the rule of international law? Why are the few lonely voices speaking out about Israel's genocide that the Palestinians attacked, censored, and doxed? This is from Chris Hedges, titled, Let Them Eat Cement. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.